Father, you are so much greater than uh, we tend to think. And uh, Lord, I would just ask you to open up our minds and our hearts to your truth today. Um, Lord, it's a topic that can be sensitive and painful and hard, and yet it's important. And so we pray you would give us ears to hear and uh, give us the, the courage and the wisdom and the love to respond the way you would want us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see on your uh, folder, today is uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Let me explain that phrase just in case it's not familiar to you. When we say human life has sanctity, that simply means there is something special about being human. And that's not being smarter than other animals or taller or... Uh, you know, having opposable thumbs or something like that. It's about what makes us unique, uh, being created in the image of our creator. That's what sets human life apart from everything else. Human life is special. It has sanctity. And uh, periodically, at least once a year, we want to hold that up. We want to think about what that means and want to think about the implications for that in a culture that that strives and fights against that and rejects that and in many ways, ways that are very hurtful. And as I was thinking about it for this year, I was uh, thinking about our celebration of Christmas. That was less than a month ago. Do you realize that? Christmas was less than a month ago. And uh, I was thinking about how when we celebrate Christmas, it's really easy to focus in on the nice, parts of the story and to kind of overlook the parts that aren't quite as nice. And I I get that. We want our Christmas celebrations to be positive and enjoyable and fun. But there's a problem. If we don't pay attention to the whole story, we can end up missing something really important. We, We can miss how outrageously radical the message of Christmas really is. And it, the, the Christmas message comes to us and, and it just doesn't challenge us and it doesn't confront us quite the way it should. I mean, think about this. Think about it. One of the main things that Christmas tells us is that the human race, the whole human race, is so messed up that in order to rescue us, from eternal misery. The God who created us had to become a man and die for us. Now we get used to hearing that. But that is that is an outrageously radical message. An angel told Joseph, you know, the husband of Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus, he said to The angel told Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And you can hear that and think, well, that's nice. Not really. Nice isn't the right word for it. It's staggering. It's shocking. It's gut-wrenching. We should hear those words with a sense of awe. 
realize what that means? Jesus saving people from their sins means Jesus dying a brutal, agonizing, bloody death on a cross in our place. Nice just isn't the right word for it. Sin is a horrible thing. And it costs Jesus his life to rescue us from it. And there's a part of the Christmas story that confronts us with this horrible reality of sin that Jesus came to rescue us from. It's, it's found in the story of the Magi. Remember those mysterious wise men? I haven't thought of the three wise men, but we, we have no idea how many there were. These wise men from the east who come and they arrive in Jerusalem and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And King Herod, who ruled over Judea, the land of the Jews, when he heard that, he was very troubled by that. Because you see, king of the Jews, that was his title. So he heard this news of a newborn king of the Jews as a direct threat to himself. And so he lies to the Magi and he says, hey, when you find him, when you find this newborn king of the Jews, uh, let me know because I'd like to come and worship him too. Which was a lie. He wanted to kill him. So the Magi do find Jesus and they worship him but then there's more to the story we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 2 beginning at verse 12 and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod they returned to their own country by another route when they had gone an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream get up he said take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt stay there until I tell you for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Now here comes the terrible part. And he gave orders to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Let that sink in. All the boys, two years and younger. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning wailing Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more that is not the kind of story we want to read at Christmas or any other time really so why is it here why is it here why do we need to know about these babies dying and these mothers weeping Because apparently we need to come face to face 
with what a horrible thing it is and what horrible things can happen when someone refuses to let God rule their lives. You know, the Magi said, where's he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod went to the religious authorities and said, where is the Messiah to be born? He knew king of Jews. That means Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Well, here's what to think of when you think of Messiah or Christ. Same word, one's Hebrew, one's Greek, but it's the same idea. Messiah is the one sent by God to rule over our lives for our good. For our good. But Herod didn't want that. He wanted to be the one in charge. He wanted to be the one who decided for himself what was good for him. And so he decided to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Well, what's the lesson for us here? It's that when we refuse to acknowledge God's leadership in our lives, when we choose to rule ourselves instead of let, letting Jesus rule us, that is a deadly choice. When we refuse to allow Jesus to rule us and we rule ourselves, terrible things happen. Not necessarily this terrible thing. But you see, what we do is we use whatever power, whatever influence we have to make things the way we want them to be. And if someone gets in the way they're probably going to get hurt. And that's why on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I want to remind us of what a terrible thing it is when human life is devalued and discarded in the name of the freedom to do what we want. And I do this knowing full well that abortion is a painful topic, and especially for those who have experienced it. It's awful. But the way to find healing is never to ignore the truth. It's to face the truth. Jesus did not come to make us miserable. He did not come to make us miserable. He came to save us from our guilt and our shame. All of us. All of us bear guilt. All of us have shame. All of us have self-inflicted wounds. He came to set us free from what sin does to us, what we choose to do. And he came to lead us for our joy if we will follow his leading. There is this parallel, I want to point out, between Bethlehem then, the whole King Herod thing, there's a parallel between Bethlehem then and our nation today. And what these two things have in common is a deadly mistake about the right to choose. Do you realize Herod thought he had the right to choose to do what he did? Now, to us, we read it, and what he did was unthinkable. Kill all the baby boys, two years later, that, that we can't even wrap our minds around that. That is so awful. That's unthinkable to us, but to him, it was a necessary choice. In his mind, it was the best way to solve a big problem, threatening his own personal well-being. 
And, and that is exactly the same justification used today by those who want no legal limits on abortion. They justify abortion as an unpleasant but a necessary choice. And so you'll hear politicians and activists and ordinary people, you may have said it yourself, you may think it yourself. Well, I personally am opposed to abortion, but I support the right of people to choose for themselves. And that sounds so good. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so American, so democratic. We like to choose for ourselves. Who could possibly be against people having the right to choose for themselves? All right, well, let's think it through. Let's go a little deeper. Think about the story of Herod. Think about those baby boys. He believed he had the right to choose killing those boys over the risk of losing his kingdom. He was wrong. He was wrong. He did not have the right to choose that. I can't imagine anyone reading this story and coming away from it saying, well, you know, I personally am opposed to killing children, but I support the right of others to choose. Nobody would say that. Why not? Because some choices are not acceptable choices. They involve choosing something that's wrong. Now think about it. Here in the state of Washington, the state of Washington says you have no right to choose certain things. You have no right to choose murder. You have no right to choose rape. You have no right to choose child abuse. You have no right to choose to drive while intoxicated and various other things. Now, why is that okay? Why is that okay that we don't have the right to choose those things and nobody makes arguments that we should have the right to choose child abuse, we should have the right to choose murder, we should have the right to choose rape? Well, because there's a difference between choices that are morally neutral and choices that are morally wrong. We only have the freedom to choose when the choice is a morally neutral choice. And we understand this in, in, in just about every other area of life. You know, if, if your choice is a morally neutral choice that doesn't involve harming somebody else, okay. So, you know, and these can be very insignificant, minor decisions. These can be big decisions, but they're morally neutral. So, you know, should I wear my brown shoes today or my black shoes? It's not a moral issue. I suppose somebody might think it is. Get in an argument with somebody over what color your shoes are. Well, we know that's foolish. Or, you know, I'm at a restaurant, I'm ordering an entree. Oh, what do you want with that? You want salad or soup? That's a morally neutral choice, and it's insignificant. Now we could think of more important bigger choices. Um, shall I stay home this Sunday morning or shall I join in with God's people in worship? Where shall I worship? Where, where shall I belong as you know, my church family? Well, those, that's a significant decision. But the government has no 
right to make that choice for us and to remove that choice from us. And we'd be very upset. It'd be a very bad thing if they took away our freedom to choose. All right, but again, morally neutral, morally wrong. Okay, so now let's apply it to the issue of abortion. Is abortion morally neutral or is it morally wrong? How are we going to decide? Is it merely an unpleasant experience, kind of like having your appendix or your gallbladder removed? Or is it a violent act of injustice? How are we going to know? Well, it all comes down to one issue. What is the nature of the unborn? What's being removed from the womb? Is it merely a piece of tissue like a gallbladder, like an appendix, or or is it a living human being? Because if it's a living, legally innocent human being, then to call abortion merely freedom of choice would be like calling what Herod did freedom of choice. It wasn't freedom of choice because other human lives were involved. So, how can we know? It's really not that difficult, actually. You might think so based on what you hear in the culture, but it's really not that difficult. Let me show you a little video clip that uh, gives us some information on that.
So medical science is uh, confident that after fertilization has occurred, a new human life has come into existence. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, an even more important question is, what has God said? Has God spoken in such a way that we can answer this question? And I'm convinced he has. There are several passages we could look at. One is Psalm 139. You might just jot that down. I don't have it on your notes, but you can read it where the psalmist says, you looked at my unformed substance, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, and so forth. But let's look at a couple others. Look at Luke chapter 141, back to the Christmas story. It describes what happened when Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus, went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with who would be John the Baptist. And it says, Mary came in to see Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to compare that to Luke 2.12. This is the birth of Jesus. Jesus has just been born, and these angels appear to the shepherds out in the field. You know the story, probably. Angel says to the shepherds, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, you see that word baby in Luke 1.41? It's the same word as Luke 2.12. One's talking about the unborn John the Baptist. The other one's talking about the born Jesus. It's the same word. And you say, well, yeah, but this is not a technical discussion. Yeah, but Luke was a doctor who wrote this. He knew what a baby was. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he describes born and unborn babies the same way, which means that God regards the unborn the same way he regards the born. They are equally valuable to him. They should be equally valuable to us. The same God who said, you shall not murder, in other words, you shall not put to death legally innocent human beings, said, describes the unborn as living human beings. So God and medical science have spoken about the nature of the unborn, but this is routinely ignored in our culture as if it really isn't the issue. And all these other things become the issue. Do you know that in several states today, you can be charged with a crime if you cause the death of an unborn child? They're called fetal homicide laws. So if you shoot a pregnant woman and both she and her unborn child die, you can be charged with two homicides. But every single one of those laws has an exception for abortion. Which means that if you cause the death of an unborn human being and call it an abortion, it's not a crime. But if you cause the death of an unborn human being and it's not an abortion, then you do commit a crime. What is the difference? It comes down to one thing. The choice of the mother. If she wants the child and you kill it, it's a crime. If she doesn't want the child and you kill it, it's a choice. The child only has the right to live if it's wanted. Folks, that is exactly the same ethic that was operational in King Herod. His desire that those baby boys not exist overruled their right to live. And there's a word for that. There's a word for that when the desires of the strong 
overrule the rights of the weak. When your fundamental right to live can be overruled by someone else who is stronger than you simply because they do not want you to live, that is called injustice. And injustice is a terrible thing that happens when we refuse to let Messiah lead our lives. So what do we do? What do we do? If we're followers of Jesus and we know that he came to save us from the deadly choice of self-rule, and he came to forgive us and to heal us, and to lead us for our good, what do we do in the face of this injustice that destroys babies and harms mommies and daddies and grandmas and grandpas and girlfriends and boyfriends? Well, what if we ask it this way? What if it were legal to do in our land what what Herod did? What if it were legal to kill babies up to two years old? By the way, let me just insert here. Here's a great question to ask whenever you're confronted with what sounds to be a very emotionally compelling argument about why we continue to need to not have laws that protect unborn human babies, human lives. Listen to the argument and then ask yourself this, or ask it out loud. Would that argument work if this baby were already born? If this were a newborn infant, would that argument still work? Because they don't work. Say, well, this is a difficult situation. This child has developmental problems or disabilities or, or this mother is too young or this situation is too hard. Okay. But it's a human life. It's a baby You don't kill babies to fix hard problems. There's got to be other options. That option comes off the table. The baby exists. This is not about should we reproduce. We've already reproduced. Now what do we do? So that's a question to ask. If this were a born baby, what would we do? But what if it were legal to kill babies up to two years old? What would we do? Would we not? Would we not pray? Would we not pray passionately that this would become unthinkable in our land? Would we not speak out for those who can't defend themselves and speak up for themselves? Would we not seek to help parents who feel so desperate that they think, they believe, they need to kill their children in order to be free? Would we not try to influence our leaders to make laws that protect innocent human life? Yeah, we would. We would be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that Jesus calls us to be. So my question is, why don't we do that now? Because what's happening today is just as unjust. You know, it was so tragic that shooting the mass murder at Newtown, Newtown, Connecticut. 20 children. 20 innocent children. Lives wiped out by a, a murderer. And, and the media went into full focus.
focus coverage and everybody's talking about it and everybody's grieved and politicians are talking about how to prevent that from ever happening again and and all that is completely justified but on that same day those 20 children were shot 3,000 other human lives were taken in abortion clinics and nobody paid any attention That's why this injustice is so massive, because it passes unnoticed. But it's going on. 55 million lives since 1973. 55 million, over a million every year. What should we do? Let's pray. We got to pray. We got to pray fervently that this will become unthinkable. We've got to speak the truth in love. In love. We've got to help people who think abortion is a necessary option to see that there are better options. We've got to influence our leaders to protect human life. I, just, I had to write, sent off an email to our new governor because in his inaugural address he made reference to something called the Reproductive Parity Act. Let me just tell you, when there's a law proposed that's got the word reproduction in it, almost always is that a code word for abortion. It has nothing to do with reproduction. Reproduction's already happened. What do we do now? And I believe this law would be a really bad idea. So I wrote him and told him so. Influence our leaders to protect human life. And when you hear someone talking about the right to choose, always ask the right to choose what? Personal preference or injustice? And what of the men and women and teens and parents who have made a bad choice, who have made the wrong choice. So many of them struggle with depression and despair and deep feelings of guilt. What about them? Well, and you might be one of them today. You need to hear this. First Timothy 1, 15-16, the Apostle Paul says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is a truth that needs to be fully embraced. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to save righteous people. He came to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display, look at it, his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What's he saying? He's saying that God forgave a blasphemous murderer named Paul to prove that nobody is too sinful for him. When we say yes to Jesus Christ, who died in our place to take our punishment, God forgives us completely. Not because of anything we've done or anything we could do, but entirely because of what Jesus has done. That's the good news. That's the good news. That God forgives us and accepts us entirely because of how good Jesus is and not because of how good we are. We're not good enough. put our trust in him we receive his forgiveness and then we trust him to lead us for our good there's such a big difference i mean we can know he's the messiah and we can know he wants to lead our lives and we can rebel and we can say i don't want to follow you i don't want to do what you say i don't want to and or we can say 
yeah, I want to follow you, but it's hard, it's a struggle, I fail, I mess up. Those are two completely different things. And trust Him to lead us. And if today you long to be forgiven, you long to be set free, He'll set you free. Ask Him to forgive you and lead you. We all need that. Can we bow together and pray? I'm going to give you just a quiet moment to pray, to talk to the Lord. And if there's anything you need to confess and ask for His forgiveness, He is so willing to forgive and so gracious. Just receive it. And then would you just take a moment and pray that God will bring about the end of this injustice in our nation and our world. Let's pray.